This week on Myths and Legends, it's a story from Albania with witches in the dark forest, dragon fights, and naked flying guys with wings in their armpits. The creature this week is why you shouldn't transform your kids and husband into sleepy animals before going out for a night on the town. This is Myths and Legends, episode 242, Two Roads. This is a podcast where we tell stories from mythology and folklore. Some are incredibly popular stories you might think you know, but with surprising origins. Others are stories that might be new to you, but are definitely worth a listen. The story this week is an extended fairy tale from Albania. We'll jump right in with two peasant brothers who are definitely peasants, discovering a secret that changes everything. Hondo waited until his father, mother, and brother were asleep before slipping from his bed and stealing his way across the family's house in the dark. It wasn't a long trip because it wasn't a large house. The four of them slept in what was little more than a one-room shack. His mother and father always talked about Honda and his twin, Jeremy, as if they were a miracle. That Sokol, his father, had been out fishing one day in the winter and yanked the ketchup from the ice and it spoke to him, saying that Sokol, the husband, was to eat his body and his wife the fish's head and the fins and tail the family's mare and to bury the entrails in the garden. That always seemed like a terrible dinner for anyone but the dad, but Handa supposed that eating magical fish was either a fertility aid or maybe an aphrodisiac, he didn't want to think about it, but nine months later, he and his brother were born. Theirs had been a happy childhood, but there was always something about the parents that eluded the boys. They barely spoke of the years, the lifetime they had before this family, saying that they had lived on this plot for generations, but none of the neighbors remembered them being there for more than 15 years. When Honda asked them, something was up, and Honda was going to find out what. He dug through his parents' chest. He found clothes, the family's savings account, like 10 gold coins, and a few other trinkets. Honda sighed. Maybe that's all his life was. He was starting to put everything back in the chest when he realized something. The space on the inside didn't match the space on the outside. This thing, this thing had a false bottom. Honda piled everything back out, pressing on the bottom, and one side popped up. Honda shined the lantern on the contents of the chest, items that would change how he saw his parents forever. His father picked up the ring and put it on his finger. A golden ring with a diamond that could buy the entire village and he grasped the silver sword. He cast a forlorn look on the painting, the one with the younger version of himself and the boy's mother. It was true. He and their mother were a king and a queen, but when their enemies fomented revolt, when all was lost, they fled. They came here to be farmers. No one knew of their past and no one ever would. They only had three things of value, the ring, the sword, and the horse they rode to safety. The day of the boy's birth, the horse also had two foals. Sokol, the king, said that the time would come for the boys to leave them. When they did, they would mount those two horses and follow their fates. 
the boys hugged their parents close. Their parents would need them here to look after the farm. They wouldn't leave. We don't always get to choose when we say goodbye to people. And Jeremy and Honda didn't get to choose when they would part with their parents. The next winter, the mother fell ill. And then their father. Before the darkness took him, he begged the boys to remember. Remember who they were. The ground was cold, but the boys were strong. After ten days of weeping at the packed dirt, Jeremy turned to Honda. The world was wide. And exile, well, exile was the end to their parents' story, not theirs. Honda nodded. He had been thinking the same thing. They cast lots for the sword and ring, the last of their parents' possessions. Honda got the ring, and Jeremy the sword. Together, they rode from home, and eleven days later, both sat looking at the crossroads, divided about which way to go. I'm actually surprised it took them eleven days to come to an intersection, but hey, maybe there wasn't a lot going on around them. Who knows? Regardless, they felt like this was the place that fate was pulling them apart. They would cast lots one more time, and each travel down a separate road. This was where they said goodbye. It ended up with Jeremy going north and Honda going south. The two brothers embraced, but then Jeremy told him to wait. The young man removed the necklace he was wearing, a locket, and presented it to his brother. Honda knew all about the necklaces they had, the ones that would turn black if they fell into danger. Honda nodded. Yep, necklaces that they've been wearing the whole time, but we're just mentioning right now. Absolutely. Jeremy said, great. He liked to just explain things that both of them knew again for no apparent reason. But they should trade necklaces. That way, if the other was in danger, he would be able to return to the spot, take the other path, and come to his brother's aid. Because there would certainly not be any subsequent intersections. The two brothers hugged, said their goodbyes, and galloped off down their own separate roads. Five days later, the road was out. Jeremy trotted up on his horse. Part of the road traveling along a cliff face had collapsed, and he looked down, seeing a hand poking out from underneath a pile of rocks. Aw. Jeremy is not just the good guy, but he's a good guy. This accident looked relatively recent, and he knew that getting the person out and burying them was the right thing to do, as opposed to leaving them there for the wolves. He found a sturdy tree, looped his rope, and rappelled down the cliff face. When he pulled the rocks from the young man, he learned two things. Miraculously, that the man, about the same age as himself, had survived. And two, armpit wings. Yeah, he has what the story calls little baby eaglet wings sprouting from his armpits, which is not clearer. Jeremy was just as confused as I was about that. He threw the stranger over his shoulder, and climbed back up. Zeph, that was the man's name, lived. And Jeremy clothed him, and they never talked about the armpit wings. And they had time to get around to it, because Jeremy, knowing how far they were out in the wilderness, helped Zeph recover. I mean, I don't know if whatever was producing the armpit wings had any effect on recovery time, but I can't imagine it was anything shorter than months out in the wilderness. When Zeph was walking again, he couldn't thank Jeremy enough and having just made it out of one medically risky event, decided to go double or nothing. Don't try this at home for 
so many reasons we now know, but the two decided to become blood brothers. They both cut their arms, mingled it, and then drank it, because, sure. Zeph had one parting word for Jeremy. If, at any point, Jeremy should need aid, even if it should cost Zeph's life, Jeremy need only place three fires two yards apart, stand in the middle, and yell three times, Oh, Zeph, son of Shakir, and Zeph would be with him. Jeremy thanked his friend and watched as Zeph strode off up the mountain. Zeph was also getting naked as he did so. Huh, weird. Three weeks later, over mountains and through valleys, Jeremy came to his first city, or thought he did. It was different. He was able to trot in through the main gate. It was left completely open. There wasn't a soul on any of the streets, and through closed and barred doors and windows, he heard wailing. Eventually, Jeremy found an inn which wasn't barred shut. That's pretty bad for business. The owner, tears streaming down his beard, took Jeremy's horse to the stable. Jeremy looked at all the other patrons in the inn, weeping as they ate their bread and sipped their wine and said, uh, maybe a weird question, but what's the deal with all this? Someone shouted from the crowd that they were in mourning, mourning for the royal princess, Bardakuka, who was to die tomorrow. Jeremy said that, well, that's sad, he guessed. They were all taking it pretty hard for people who likely didn't have any personal stake in it, but sorry, how long had she been sick? The old man looked up, his bloodshot eyes meeting Jeremy. Sick. She wasn't sick. She was to be given to the Kuchedra. Kuchedra, the people in the inn whispered in unison. Jeremy was surprised by the whisper, but turned back to the innkeeper. Uh, okay. Supplementary question. What's the Kuchedra? Kuchedra. The patrons, again, whispered in terrified unison. The Kuchedra, Kuchedra was, surprise, surprise, a monster. It begins life as a small worm in a dark cave. But every 50 years, if not seen by the human eye, it changes into a more terrible shape. At 200 years, it becomes the Kuchedra. Kuchedra. It's then of monstrous size, filled with poison so that its breath kills birds and the yellow foam it spits strikes anything dead. Theirs in particular was the size of 40 oxen. It has the form like a woman, gray skin like willow bark, quote, breasts that hang to its knees and hair it whips around like snakes. Not that she went full gorgon and the hair was snakes, but that she whips them around like snakes. The Kuchedra, Kuchedra. is older than the cypress trees and more dreaded than an army of lions. It was scary not only because of her size and the lion stuff, but because, to keep from laying waste to the town with her terrible breath, they had to give a maiden to the beast, to be eaten once every month. The king proposed a lottery, where all the young women in the city would participate. And he entered his daughter's name into the mix, as a show of good faith. Almost instantly regretting that decision, the very next month, his daughter, the princess, was chosen. Jeremy asked... If no hero had tried to kill the monster, the people shrugged. Sure, yeah. A lot of heroes went to attack the Kuchedra, Kuchedra. but none returned. Her lair was piled high with the bones of heroes. Or they just saw her and her breath that could kill birds and noped on out of there. No one was really sure because no one had actually seen the lair and returned. That's because, according to the legend, 
No one could destroy the Kuchedra, Kuchedra. but the Drog. Jeremy said, uh, okay, Hillbite. What's a Drog? A Drog. It's a guy with wings in his armpits. Jeremy gasped. He knew a guy like that. Apparently, of the 10,000 baby boys born each year, one is born with wings in his armpits, and their parents hide them away until their true power can become realized. After they reach the age of 12, they're able to fly naked through the sky, which explained why Zeph had been disrobing as he left Jeremy. Before Jeremy left the city, he made a deal with the king. If he rescued the king's daughter, he would get to marry her. The king shrugged, yeah, sure standard fairy tale deal. This one had kind of a quick expiration date. They were getting her horse together to send her out to the monster as the men spoke. The king told him, eh, good luck though. Outside the city, at the center of three fires, Jeremy raised his hands and called out to Zeph three times. Before he could finish his third Shakir, thunderstruck, and his friend landed next to him. Jeremy glanced at his friend. Great to see Zeph again. He was seeing a lot more of Zeph right now. Did the man mind putting on some pants? He did actually need Zeph's help. Zeph said one moment. <laughs> he sniffed the air. She was here. The Kuchedra. Kuchedra. Zeph looked at Jeremy. What, what was that whispering thing? Jeremy said, oh, that's what the people said every time someone said the name. Oh, well, that's not a thing. Zeph corrected. Anyway, the Kuchedra... Kuche, oh, sorry, hard habit to break, Jeremy said. Go on. Zeph said that the monster was the sworn enemy of the Drog. And even though the Drog could kill the thing, he couldn't do it alone. He would summon all of his fellow armpit wing babies. They were, I guess, grown-ups now. And they would descend on the monster like a nude, armpit-winged cavalry. His friend, though, would get to make good on his promise to the king and Zeph would let Jeremy strike the killing blow, rescuing his wife-to-be. With that, Zeph raised his arms, his little winglets flapped, and he fluttered up to the sky. My princess, I love thee, I am here to protect thee! Jeremy called out to the woman who was riding her horse down into the Valley of Darkness to be devoured by a worm monster. The princess looked on the man. Okay, uh, she appreciated his love, but like, she already had a lot to deal with today, like being sacrificed. She didn't want to hurt his feelings, but he looked like he would be killed pretty instantly by the monster. Also, she didn't know him, she didn't love him, and he should leave before he dies. Jeremy bowed low, sword point in the ground. He saw what she was trying to do. This was a test. He would stick with her no matter what she said. She said it absolutely wasn't a test. She was prepared to die, and he shouldn't burden her last moments with responsibility for his life or his creepy controlling stalker tactics. Jeremy smiled. Look at her looking out for him, in love with him already. What a pair they were. She, once again, tried to tell him that he was reading the situation 100% wrong, but he laid down on her lap. All right, he was going to take a nap. 
she should wake him when the Kuchedra comes. She said that this was very much her personal space and she was not, oh, cool, he's snoring now. The princess had a solution to Jeremy's love. She grabbed her rope and looped it around his feet, tying the other end to his own saddle. When the Kuchedra came and the horse ran away, he would be dragged behind a horse to safety, that being an excellent way to get someone to safety, dragging them behind what is essentially a moving vehicle. Because she's the princess and he's a prince who's out to rescue her, there are things that have to happen. And one of those things is that the princess looked into the stalker's sleeping face and fell in love. She still does keep him tied to the horse, though, because love. Just then, there was a roar from the darkness of the valley below, and, true to the princess's prediction, that horse bolted. Jeremy snapped awake when the rope attaching him to his horse became taut, and he flew off, feet first, after the horse, leaving the princess alone to face the barn-sized beast. Seeing as he had his father's sword on him, Jeremy was able to react quickly, drawing the blade and hacking at the rope. When he finally found himself stationary on a soft bed of pine needles, he unwound the rope, picked up his sword, and rushed back toward the beast. He expected to find the princess looking all Princess Peach, screaming and flailing in the arms of a monster. The princess did as I personally probably would have and fainted at the prospect of poisonous certain death. Jeremy barely registered that, though, because in the sky above, there was a cloud of naked men descending on them. Yeah, the clouds rumbled, and Jeremy exhaled. The drog had arrived. Fluttering down with their armpit wings, it, it was raining men. Tall, blonde, dark, lean, rough and tough and strong and mean. All types had responded to Zeph's call to help his blood brother. The Kuchedra spewed poison into the sky, but the drogs simply held out their left hands and absorbed the poison. It had no effect on them. They raised their right hands, and lightning struck all around. Lightning formed in their hands like javelins, and throwing them in unison, they rained pain down on the monster. She tried to retreat, but some of the men fluttered over and rolled boulders in her path. She tried swiping out at them, spewing poison, but they dodged her swipes, and again, absorbed her poison. The sky was flashing with an uninterrupted lightning storm, and then everything was still. Zeph fluttered down to Jeremy. He said it was time. They were able to hold her back, but to make good on his promise to win the princess, he needed to strike the killing blow. Jeremy ran up to the monster, held his sword aloft, and struck down. He felt it slide through her skin, past her ribs, and jerk when it pierced her heart. Instantly, putrid blood flowed in a black river, and Jeremy was nearly swept away. But Zeph caught him. He had done it. The Kuchedra was dead. Zeph then pointed out the tongue of the Kuchedra, saying that it was a powerful magical tool, and Jeremy cut it out and put it in his bag. Jeremy and Zeph said goodbye with a kiss, and then all the drog fluttered off like man-sized butterflies, the clouds above them clearing. Jeremy shouted a thanks to his blood brother. Jeremy turned to wake the sleeping princess, when something else caught his eye. His necklace dangled into view. It was dark. His brother, Honda, his brother was in danger. 
he made some preparations, found his horse, and galloped off back up the road to go save his brother. We'll follow Honda into the dark forest, but that will be right after this. Six months earlier, Honda jumped from horseback, sword drawn. This hero thing, he was kind of killing it. I mean, he was doing very well for his first jump from horseback with a sword drawn, but he was also doing a great job of killing the 50 wolves that now surrounded him and his terrified horse. With each swing of his sword, Honda was kind of just as surprised as anyone. This was going really well. He was kicking wolves supine before leaping atop of them and driving his sword down into their chests. He did that thing where he got two wolves to charge at him, ducked, and they hit heads above him. He might have even run up a tree and done a matrix flip. For someone with zero experience fighting, yeah, he was surprisingly good. Then, the shadow of the old woman of the wood, the witch who ruled these realms, dropped over him. She had summoned these wolves, just like she had led him astray in the dark forest the day before. She didn't want him reaching the great beauty of the world, the woman at the center of the wood, that an old man cracking hazelnuts had told Honda about two days ago, and Honda restructured his entire life around rescuing her. The she-wolf witch took a swipe, I guess forgetting how swords work, and a second later, held up a severed limb. The wolf howled and limped off into the forest. The wolves that could follow did. When she was gone, Honda heard a crack behind him and spun on a heel to see the little old man who lived in the dark forest, always cracking hazelnuts, even when in the middle of way too many dead wolves. He nodded approvingly. Nice job, he said, as the guy who warned Honda about the witch and told him about the beauty of the earth, as the woman is apparently named, he had to say that Honda really should take the win here. He did a good job, but no one returned from the witch's castle. I'll say this so you can have one of those moments where you remember me saying this at the right time. Everyone who walks through the front door of the witch's castle falls down dead. Honda laughed, wiping wolf blood from his sword. He was gonna be fine. Honda was pretty confident, so confident that... Upon spotting the witch's castle, it just looked like a regular castle, by the way, he decided that questing through the dark forest, though fun and surprisingly easy, was tiring. And he wasn't getting his solid 10 hours of sleep each night. He was going to let his horse graze, lay down for a three or four hour power nap, and then storm the castle. He piled his bags up into a pillow, and then was out. A few minutes earlier, beautiful of the earth, we'll just call her beauty from now on, ran to the witch, blood stains streaking down her cloak. What happened? The witch straightened up. Oh, uh, she was out carving some wood in the forest, you know, like whittling, and wouldn't you know it, the knife slipped. Beauty inspected the wound, slipped and cut off her hand? The witch glowered and looked out to the forest surrounding her castle. Yes and she would have her revenge on that knife. Her hand would regrow in like, I don't know, six months or so. Beauty gestured to the courtyard full of statues. Well, it looked like the witch's hobby of carving young men in battle poses out of stone would have to take a break then, right? <laughs> the witch, 
shaking herself from her brooding stare out into the forest, said, Oh, yep, mm-hmm, yep, that was definitely where those came from. She definitely hadn't committed her golden years to keeping strange men from carrying the girl off. Beauty absentmindedly followed the witch's gaze to where she had been looking, and then a little farther out? Huh, what was that? The witch squinted. What was what? Beauty was racing to the top of the wall to take a look. She spotted Honda, of course, and was instantly smitten. The witch shook her head seriously. All right, she would go invite the man in. When Beauty looked at the witch walking out to Honda, it's... Hey, why are you... Can you change your form? Beauty asked. The witch shook her now much younger looking head. No, it's, it's a trick of the light. It's daylight? It's like noon, Beauty said. But the witch ignored her and shook Honda awake. And then shook him again. Seriously, this was the guy she couldn't kill. She kicked him in the ribs and he yawned. Oh, hey, what's up? What's up is that the old woman of the wood has invited you into her castle. It's super nice. She made mini quiches, continental breakfast and everything. Cookies? Honda asked, narrowing his eyes. The witch in the guise of a serving girl sighed and rolled her eyes at the same time. Cookies, sure. Glory to thy mouth, Honda declared. I accept. Glory to thy mouth? Is that something people say or is it just mistranslated? Doesn't matter. Please come with me right through the front door. Honda stopped through the front door. Why did he feel like there was something he was supposed to remember at this moment? Then he recalled the words of the helpful man who was always cracking hazelnuts. Everyone who walks through the front door of the witch's castle falls down dead. The serving girl, aka witch, turned around when she didn't hear footsteps behind her. Honda was mounting his horse. What are you doing? Honda pointed to the castle. That wall of yours? I'm a jump it. Jump it? It's, it's a castle wall. Just walk through the front door. The serving girl was growing more panicked. Nah, I'm a jump it. Magical horse I got from my dad's magical horse, I think. Rules haven't really been spelled out. Here's hoping she can jump 20 feet straight up in the air. If it was like an Olympic event, the horse would have 100% cleared the bar. Wouldn't have even moved when the hair on the horse's tail or Honda's cloak touched it. But they did touch the wall, and the witch had some defenses in place against any men who tried to scale her walls. When Honda and the horse thudded to the ground, they were stone as well. Beauty stood there shocked. Wait, are all these guys real? It was about this time on Jeremy's quest. That, he was palling around, helping Zeph heal up like 10 miles away. The excellent brother that he was, he wouldn't notice that his locket had gone dark for like five more months. Moments after Jeremy had noticed his necklace had gone dark, but before he left the princess, a stranger walked up to the pair beside the dragon's corpse. Uh... Why are you rubbing the princess's feet? Barkulku, the stranger, asked Jeremy. 
Jeremy said that he had to go, but he wanted to wake the princess up first. By rubbing her feet? Barkulku looked off screen. That, is that in the original? That's in the original? All right, weird. Jeremy asked Barkulku what he was doing here. Barkulku shrugged. He was a medieval peasant, and there was a monster fight that he could see. He always watched the heroes fight the Kuchedra. You watch, and you don't intervene? You coward, Jeremy spat, as he continued rubbing the princess's feet. Yeah, because it's a poison dragon the size of a barn, Barkulku rejoined. Also, kind of cheap for you to high-road me here. It looked like your naked armpit angels did a lot of your heavy lifting. Jeremy looked to his locket again. It had just gone dark. Oh no, his brother was in trouble. He turned to Barkulku. From his brief time in town, he knew who Barkulku was. Little bit of a liar. Kind of untrustworthy. Didn't pay taxes. He stole sometimes. Tripped babies. Barkulku smirked. <laughs> Guilty. Jeremy said that he had no other option, though. Would Barkulku stay with the princess until she awoke and then help her back to town? Tell the king that Jeremy had killed the monster and that he would take the deal and marry the princess? Barkulku took Jeremy's hands into his. He solemnly swore on like 500 naked armpit angels that he would never return with the princess and the dragon's head, lie and say that he killed the Kuchedra, marry the princess, and inherit the kingdom. Jeremy clasped Barkulku's hands. That was really specific in what he wouldn't do. That's how he knew he could trust Barkulku. Jeremy leapt atop his horse and galloped off. After Barkulku finished sawing off the dragon's head, the princess gasped, waking up. No foot rubs required. She looked on Barkulku wiggling the dragon's head, all the brain bits falling out. Guess who killed the Kuchedra? We'll learn that, surprise, you definitely shouldn't entrust your dragon head to a known liar, but that will be read after this. The old man sat cracking hazelnuts. Yeah, sorry kid, your brother's dead. He went to confront the witch. Jeremy would be dead too if he followed. Her magic controlled this whole forest. She can take any form. He was warning Jeremy to turn back. Jeremy pulled something from his pack. He had something that could handle any sort of magic. A big slimy whip, the man asked, taking a break from his hazelnuts for the first time. It's a dragon tongue, Jeremy said, shaking his head. Oh yeah, that makes sense. Why wouldn't I guess a dragon tongue, the hazelnut man said with an eye roll. Jeremy directed his horse and started off into the forest. It wasn't half a day before he heard weeping. He led his horse over, through trees, and saw a beautiful young woman, walking alone, through the dark forest. Jeremy waved. Hey there, did this definitely not suspicious person need a ride? The woman's concern melted into relief. Yes, absolutely, thank you so much. Jeremy nodded, sure, hop up. He helped the young woman up, and she sat in front of him in the saddle, and she shifted uncomfortably. Something in the young man's pack, it, it hurt? Jeremy held up his hands. Say no more. He took out the dragon's tongue and wrapped it around the stranger. 
she sighed. You know, huh? Jeremy said it really wasn't that hard. Young woman traveling the dark forest alone without weapons or provisions. When he was warned about exactly that not three hours ago. Oh, the woman replied, taking her witchy woman form. Yeah, Jeremy nodded. So, what do I need to do to live? The witch asked. The men in the witch's courtyard unfroze. Some screamed and finished slicing downward with their swords. Others turned and ran about 30 feet, before realizing that they weren't in the fight that brought them there. It was an entire company of epic heroes who had come to fight the witch. All the young men that were thought to have been killed by her. Oh my gosh, we made the jump, Honda said when he was unfrozen. Oh, hey bro. Wait. All right, I unfroze your brother and all the other heroes. Just please get out of my house and leave me and my ward in peace, the witch said glancing side-eyed at the other heroes. Some had been there for a hundred years or more, frozen, and their type got a little stabby in the presence of evil. But they wouldn't be leaving the witch and the young woman she was protecting because beauty flew to Honda. She had been wiping bird poop off of his statue for six months. She was in love. Honda turned to his brother. The male epic hero code meant that he had the right of first refusal for any woman they rescued seeing as Jeremy rescued both of them. Both Jeremy and Beauty grimaced. Gross, no. Jeremy had met someone else in a far-off kingdom. Briefly ignoring the witch's pleas for them to get out of her house, the other heroes gathered around the brothers. They had saved the young men from a lifetime of being statues in the courtyard of an evil witch who kept them there. Hey, you broke into my house, the witch yelled from the background. The young heroes said that they wanted to repay the brothers for their bravery. The brothers looked at each other. If Honda didn't have anything else going on, take back Dad's old kingdom? They could use some help taking back Dad's old kingdom. The brothers parted again, with Jeremy having somewhere to be, and Honda and Beauty leading the epic heroes to the border of King Sokol's land, where it said that the people picked up arms and fought on behalf of the son that they had never met, of the king who had been deposed in a coup 30 years prior. The usurper was killed, and Honda placed on the throne. All of this, I'm assuming, was because Honda had his father's signet ring. Who knows, though? Jeremy returned to the kingdom of the Kuchedra to learn something that shouldn't have been remotely shocking. Yeah, wedding taking place this hour. The guard grinned. The princess is marrying the slayer of the Kuchedra. Barkulku, Jeremy said, making a fist. He pushed past the guard and rushed into the wedding. He really did time it perfectly. He hit it right when they were asking if anyone objected or had a reason why these two should not be wed, and yeah, the man with a slimy whip in the back seemed to have something to say. Barkoku swallowed hard. Coward? That man was a coward who ran away while he stepped in and killed the Kuchedra? Kuchedra, the audience whispered. The king stepped up. Yeah, Jeremy had some nerve running away and leaving his daughter to die after the king willingly gave up his daughter to die. What? I didn't run. All right, all right, we're going to finish this up really quickly. Can we go get the Kuchedra's head? Jeremy asked. It's right out there in the courtyard on a stake. He had something to show everyone. The head, which at three weeks was really starting to get ripe, 
was dragged in by the guards. Jeremy walked up and asked if anything was missing. There isn't, coward, Barkulku barked. Hmm, maybe try opening the mouth? They pried open the mouth, and Jeremy placed his equally nasty belt slash whip inside. He said that he had cut the rope on the back of the horse and returned to slay the Kuchedra, and with the help of naked armpit angels that it would take too long to explain, he was successful. His magical necklace changed colors, also would take too long to explain, and so he entrusted everything to Barkulku to help the princess return safely. Turned out the man took credit for everything, just like he said he wouldn't. In the very original, which I couldn't find a translation of, the pair reportedly settled it in combat for all to see. While this is dramatic, I feel like it takes our current character to a vengeful, bloodthirsty place. Even if it is technically justice. We'll just go with the translation I found that said the king had Barkulku executed and mounted his head on a spike next to the Kuchedras in the courtyard. Jeremy and the princess were married. boys met at the agreed-upon place. Both of them had now grown into not just men, but kings themselves. They stood over the packed dirt of the graves. They now had grass growing on them. Graves that, less than a year ago, represented the start of their journey. They had a long talk about where their parents should be laid to rest. With their father's ancestors in the crypts, with their mothers in a far-off kingdom, but they looked around them, at the farm where they had grown up. This might not be a palace, but it was the life that they had had with their parents. And even though the parents lived in exile, neither Honda nor Jeremy remembered them ever being sad there. In fact, because of the exile, they had years with their parents, where, as they were quickly learning of royal life, their father could have been traveling for months at a time with an army, or their mother overseeing the castle or negotiations with dignitaries. What fate meant for bad, their parents made into a blessing. The brothers walked with arms around each other's shoulders, back to their horses. Ring on Honda's finger, sword at Jeremy's side, and made their way back to their own homes, careful never to forget who they were or where they came from. Next week, we're back in the Arthurian legends, where Guinevere learns a dark secret about her family's past, one that will have repercussions for all of Great Britain. If you'd like to support the show, there's still a membership thing on the site. And for way less than the price of Black Widow spider venom that you can apparently buy online for research, I'm assuming research in your supervillain lab or something, you can get extra episodes and ad-free versions of the show that, sadly, won't jumpstart your career in mad science. Check out support.mythpodcast.com for more info on the membership. The creature this week is La Calchona from Chile. So as a parent, when your kid goes to bed, that's kind of your time. You can clean up, get ready for the day ahead, and then do some hobbies. I like to exercise, play video games, tinker with computers. La Calchona had some other hobbies. She liked to go out in the form of animals and just chill out. Where she went wrong was that she got a little impatient. Instead of waiting for her kids to fall asleep, she rubbed them with a salve that knocked them out and turned them into foxes. She also did the same with her husband. When everyone was asleep, and animals, she would leave for a much-needed moonlit stroll. Well, the husband began to catch on, 
maybe because he was suspiciously tired at 6.30 after a back rub by his wife, also because his bed was full of fox hair. One night, he willed himself to stay awake and watched his wife. He did this for two or three nights, to be sure, and learned exactly which salves brought them back from being animals. When his wife left, he turned his kids back, smashed every bottle in the house, took the children, and never returned. When La Calchona got home, she found the smashed remains of her potions. She panicked and was able to scrape the last little bit out of one of the jars that wasn't completely smashed. She rubbed her face in the remains and screamed. She would forever be a sheep with the face of a woman traveling the night. She's played a lot of different roles over the years. She went through a phase where she attacked anyone, taking out her anger, but luckily as a sheep, she really has to sneak up on you, trip you and trample you. It's fairly easy to get away. She did go through like a vigilante phase, where she tried to only kill evildoers, criminals, and unfaithful spouses, leaping from trees and hugging them to death, which maybe a sheep can do? But I imagine the amount of research that goes into making sure you're killing the right people just makes that impractical, especially as a sheep human. Whatever her current phase, she's still out there, wandering a lonely road, probably wishing that she got into like any other hobby than taking moonlit walks in animal form. That's it for this week. Myths and Legends is by Jason and Carissa Weiser. Our theme song is by Broke for Free, and the Creature of the Week music is by Steve Combs. Thank you so much for listening, and we'll see you next time.